The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Um, We are doing a series right now on Berean distinctives, and this is going to be part four. So far, we've looked at free grace. That is opposed to lordship salvation that says, if, you know, if you're a Christian, you'll do this, this, and this. Uh, we don't know that. If you're a Christian, you trust Christ. That's what a Christian does, all right? We looked at divine election. Most of the world today, most of churchianity is saying, you know, it's up to your free will. The Bible says that God has chosen in eternity past. Last week, we looked at preterism, <clears throat> which we're all familiar with here. It's a view of eschatology. We believe the Lord returned in AD 70 which would have been quickly, shortly, soon to this generation, like he said he would. And so this morning we want to look at the divine counsel viewpoint. So as if Berean Bible Church is not far enough out from the mainstream of Christianity, Jeff has to go and drop the divine counsel viewpoint on us. It was Tuesday, August the 12th, 2014. 2014, Kathy and I were driving back from vacation in Pennsylvania, our hometown up there, and uh, Jeff had preached for me on Sunday, August the 10th, 2014, while we were out of town. While driving back, I downloaded the message from the audio and put it on and was listening to it on the way back. I had my headphones in, so Kathy wasn't hearing it. Um, And it's amazing I didn't wreck the car, (laughs) because I'm like... What in the world is he talking about? I mean, Jeff was talking about something I had never heard before. I'd been a Christian for 39 years at that time. I'd been a full-time pastor for 31 years, and I had never heard of this. So I listened intently a couple times. It's a long trip back. (laughs) My mind was literally racing. And when I got home, I began to study this every spare minute that I had. I remember my wife saying, are you ever coming out of your office? You know, I'm like, no, I got to figure this out. This is, you know, and so I was just, I was excited about it because it's pretty cool to see something you never saw before that seems to be in the scripture. And I studied it for months and I came to the conclusion, this is actually what the Bible teaches. There were many gods. <laughs> very, very new position to me, but uh, there it was. And so, as Berean Bible Church, we took one step further out of mainstream Christianity. You know, it's just like, wow. <laughs> now, we have a lot of teachings on this view on our website. You can read them, you can listen to them, you can watch them. Today, what I want to try to do is just lay out this whole view in an hour. And it should really take like eight hours, but I'm going to try to condense it to an hour just to give you the overall view. You want more details? Like I said, we have plenty of stuff on the website. All right, so let's start at the beginning. In the far reaches of eternity past, Yahweh always existed. The eternal God of the Bible has always existed, and He always will. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth, and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
as El Olam, Yahweh is known as the everlasting God. Now, the Hebrew name Olam means forever, perpetual, ancient, implying that there is an infinite future and past. The principles of the laws of nature, the beginning of time, and the first existence of this world are all the result of Yahweh, the Creator who possesses never-ending wisdom and power. He was before all time and all worlds. So, we have Yahweh existing from all eternity. Now, when I say Yahweh, I mean Yahweh being the three persons of the Divine Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Then at a point in time, I have no idea when, nobody knows when, but at a point in time, Yahweh created other gods. Lesser gods, of course, than Himself, because they are created. He has always existed. And angels, He created these lesser gods and angels to be part of His divine family. His divine council. Christ, who is Yahweh incarnate, is said to have created everything that exists, including other gods. Look at Colossians 1, 13-16. He has delivered us, believers, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom, in the beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him, and that's referring back to the Beloved Son, for by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Now the things in heaven are invisible, the things on earth are the visible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. All right, now the phrase here, all things. This occurs six times in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And it literally means the all or the totality, referring to the creation. Yeshua designed all creation, visible, that's the earthly kingdoms and empires, invisible, that's divine principalities and powers. Now the words here, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, probably refer to spirit beings and not human government. In part, this refers to the hierarchy of spiritual beings. We see Yahweh meeting with these gods in Psalm 82 that was read this morning. God has taken His place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. Now, I believe that this is referring to divine beings who were part of Yahweh's divine council. Now, the problem here, if you're using the New American Standard, you're not going to get this picture at all. Because it doesn't say in the midst of the gods, it says in the midst of the rulers. We'll talk about that in a minute here. But the idea of a divine council, that may sound strange to you. Because most Christians today simply believe they got God ruling, Satan opposing Him, Yahweh seen as the only good deity, and Satan is seen as the only bad deity. But in the Hebrew Bible, we see a divine council, a ruling body, consisting of Yahweh as the supreme monarch, and various supernatural attendants. And all the ancient Mediterranean cultures had some conception of a divine council. 
I mean, if you look in mythology, you see these councils of gods and all the mythological things that people talk about. But the Hebrew Bible describes the divine council under the authority of Yahweh, the God of Israel. See, in the, in the other divine councils, all the gods are fighting and they want to be the top dog and it can't happen, okay? They're fighting and killing each other off. Well, that doesn't happen in the Hebrew Bible. Yahweh is never going to be killed off. He's the authority, all right? Now, while the divine council of Israel and its neighbors share significant features, the divine council of the Israelite religion was distinct in many important ways. Yahweh is a unique God, but He's not alone. Now, the idea of a pantheon of gods and a heavenly council is witnessed to by various literary genres in the Hebrew Bible. It's mentioned in historical passages, it's mentioned in narratives, in poetic passages, in prophetic visions, it's in temple liturgy, 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 apocalyptic visions. It also transcends the historical timeline from the earliest primeval history to the final eschatological frontier. The concept and imagery of the divine council is woven throughout the pages of the Hebrew Bible. And here in our text, the translators render Adah as divine counsel. Young's translates it as company of God. The term Hadah is normally translated as congregation, and the term divine counsel is used by Hebrew scholars to refer to the heavenly host, the pantheon of divine beings who administer the affairs of the cosmos. Now, the New American Standard here says he judges in the midst of the rulers. That's a bad translation. Because the Hebrew word there for God and the Hebrew word for rulers, it's the same Hebrew word, Elohim. So why would you translate one God and then say, well, it's the same verse, same writer, same everything. Let's translate this something else. Let's make this rulers. The Hebrew word here, Elohim, Again, it's used both times. Now, let me talk for just a minute about Elohim. I think it's a confusing term, I think, to most people. Elohim is used 2,606 times in the New American Standard. Elohim is the plural of El, which goes, comes from a root meaning might, strength, power. So El would be God. El, it's used of God throughout the Hebrew Bible, but Elohim is the plural but it's what grammarians would call a morphological plural. <laughs> Hebrew nouns that end in I-M are plural, but in most cases throughout the Tanakh, the meaning is singular. We know this from the grammar. Now, Elohim is like our English word deer or sheep. How do you know if deer is singular or plural? Context. Context. Whatever, you got to look at the grammar and see how it's used, right? It's the same thing. By the grammar of the sentence. Well, the very first use of Elohim is found in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Now, here the verb bara, which is created, identifies the subject of the verb as masculine singular. Now, you may think of Elohim as another name for Yahweh. But Elohim is used in the scripture for many others besides Yahweh. Yahweh is called Elohim over 2,000 times, as it is here in Genesis 1.1. We know that Yahweh is called Elohim, but He is not the only one. 
See, as we see in Psalm 82, members of Yahweh's divine council are also called Elohim. He's meeting in the midst of the gods. All the uses of Elohim in the Tanakh refer to spiritual beings. Hebrew scholar Michael Heiser notes that Elohim is a place of residence locator. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying when you see the word Elohim, it's used of those who are in the spiritual realm. That's locating them. Where where are they coming from? Elohim is a place of residence. They live in the spirit world. They're in the spirit realm. They're not on the earthly realm. All right? Here's what's interesting. If Samuel is called Elohim, how's that fit with Heiser's definition? Well, Samuel is called Elohim after he's dead. Okay? He's in the spirit world. So now he is called an Elohim. Because he's, that's his location. He's in the spirit world now. All right. <clears throat> Let me say a word here about the ESV translation. In my opinion, I think it's one of the better translations available at this time. And here's why I think that. The starting point for the ESV translation was the 1971 edition of the Revised Standard Version. And each word of the text was also checked against and based on the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible. The publisher Crossway says this about the ESV. In exceptionally difficult cases, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, the Sumerian Pentateuch, the Syriac Peshuta, the Latin Vulgate, and other sources were consulted to shed possible light on the text, or if necessary, to support a divergent from the Masoretic text. So, ESV is using all the resources possible. Resources we didn't have not that long ago. So they're using all these resources to try to get a proper translation. The ESV is what would be called a formal equivalence translation, meaning word for word. And they attempt to translate the Bible as literally as possible, keeping the sentence structure and idioms intact if possible. Now, let me say this. It is not perfect. There's places I don't like it. Okay, but overall, I think it's really good. And when you're, especially when you're dealing with the divine council, they do a good job dealing with that. Now, if you remember back when we did First John, I, they, I didn't like their translation in First John in a few places, so I switched to the the Christian Standard Bible back then. But <clears throat> so they're good, they're just not perfect. All right, so let's go back to the subject of Elohim. We have an example in early Judaism where people are using Psalm 82 to talk about the judgment of the gods. Because there's a lot of discussion, you know. Well, is Psalm 82 talking about him, you know, ministering justice in the human, among the human rulers? Or is this talking about gods? What's it talking about? Well, we go back and we find Psalm 82 talked about when they dug up Qumran. Remember the caves? They found all these different manuscripts. They have a manuscript called 11Q Melchizedek. And it uses Psalm 82 to talk about the judgment of the gods. So we know the people of that time, that's what they believed about this. 11Q Melchizedek says, It is the time of the year of Melchizedek. And by Melchizedek, they're referring to Christ here. And of his armies, the nation of the holy ones of God, of the rule of judgment, as it is written about him in the songs of David, who said, God will stand in the assembly of the gods, In the midst of the gods, he judges. So they clearly saw this referring to gods. All right, this referring to Christ who is the judge. 
In the 11Q Melchizedek text, it goes on immediately the next line to say this, to this, to his aid shall come all the gods of justice. So there are these good gods coming to the aid of Melchizedek in the destruction of Belial and the other gods, the bad gods, the fallen gods to redeem the people. Now, as I said here, God and gods are both the Hebrew word Elohim. This is speaking of God meeting with them in the council. Uh, Daniel calls them watchers. I like that term. I think it's kind of cool. <laughs> now, we don't know at what point in time Yahweh created these other gods. But we see that these gods were there when he created the world. We see this in Job 38, 4-7. God is saying, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Talking to Job, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. God's being sarcastic with Job here. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So here, morning stars and sons of God are names of divine beings. They're members of the divine council. You know, a lot of people, in order to not have this view of other gods, they say sons of God, that's just referring to humans. Well, how do you have humans at creation? Were these created before creation? And where did they live? Because the world is being created here, and the sons of God are there, but humans are not there, okay? So before the creation of the earth, before the creation of man, you have Yahweh and you have these other gods, the lesser gods, these created divine beings that make up the divine council. And this council is meeting in the heavens, according to Psalm 89 that David read this morning. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Yahweh, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to Yahweh? Who among the heavenly beings is like Yahweh, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are. O Yahweh, with your faithfulness all around you. Now, not only do we see in this text that the council meets in the skies, which refers to the heavenly realm, but here we also see a diverse collection of titles for these gods. We see they are called the assembly of the holy ones. They're called heavenly beings. It's called the council of the holy ones. And it's called, they're called hosts. We see these different titles. We find these different titles throughout the Hebrew Bible. But Psalm 89 kind of pulls all these things together. Now, the word assembly used here <coughs> is the Hebrew kahal. And it means assembly, company, congregation, multitude. So here we have an assembly or a congregation of holy ones. The word councils from the Hebrew word sod, which means a session, a company of persons in close deliberation, intimacy. We see the word sod here that he used here for council also in Jeremiah 23. He's, Jeremiah says, For who among them has stood in the council? Now in this passage, Jeremiah is dealing with false prophets. See, a true prophet had met in the council with God. False prophets obviously didn't. And so he said, who among them, the false prophets, has stood in the council of Yahweh to see and to hear his word? 
Or who has paid attention to His word and listened? And then in verse 22, He says, But if they stood in My counsel, then they would have proclaimed My words to My people. And they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. And in Job 15, 7, He says, Are you the first man who was born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God? And do you limit wisdom to yourself? Now, he's asking Job here, are you the first man that was born? Who would that be? Adam, right? And he says, or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened to the counsel of God? Because Adam was in the counsel of God. We'll talk about that in a minute. Adam lived in the garden with God. Now, in both these Jeremiah passages and in the Job passage, the focus is on God's prophets who get a glimpse into God's heavenly throne room. They overhear God in discussion with the council. And we talked about this several weeks ago, but a biblical prophet is someone who has met with Yahweh. Someone who has stood in the council and have been sent to speak for Yahweh. So in Psalm 89, we also see the title, Heavenly Beings which in Hebrew is Ben-El, or sons of God. We see this used in Psalm 29, 1 and 2. Ascribe to Yahweh, O heavenly beings, that's sons of God, Ben-El. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh glory, do His name. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. So here the sons of God, the Ben-El, are called upon to worship Yahweh. Uh, Job 1.6, now there was a day when the sons of God, Ben-El, came to present themselves before Yahweh and Satan came along with them because he was one of them. They come to give an answer to Yahweh. As I said, Daniel calls these sons of God watchers. Now, in Daniel, in the judgment of King Nebuchadnezzar, notice what Daniel says in, in chapter 4, verse 17. This, this, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowest of men. Now the word watchers here is from the Hebrew a'er, which means a watcher, a divine guardian. The non-canonical book of First Enoch has a lot to say about these watchers, in fact, the first 36 chapters of 1 Enoch is called the Book of the Watchers. In Scripture, this word is used only by Daniel. But if you look at the other two times Daniel uses it, you see that he's referring to spiritual beings. It's very clear. In 4.13, he says, I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. And then in verse 23, he says, And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying. So every time Daniel used the term watchers, he tells us that they're holy ones. And here he also says they're coming down from heaven. Now, how many times have you read Daniel 4, you read these verses, and you never stopped to ask yourself, who are these watchers and why are they making decisions? Well, they're part of Yahweh's divine counsel. And I, by the way, I ask myself those questions. You know, I'm like, I've read this watchers thing so many times, never, who are they? What are they doing? 
In Psalm 89, we also see the title host is used. And we see it in 1 Kings 22, 19. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on a throne. Okay, this is a throne room vision. And all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. So he sees this vision and here's Yahweh on the throne and all these spirit beings are surrounding him. The hosts of heaven is referring to divine beings. It's a throne room scene. They're not the stars in the sky. They're other gods. This is a great text here in 1 Kings to, to see this whole idea of divine counsel. Nehemiah 9.6 says, You are Yahweh, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with their host, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the hosts of heaven worship you. Uh, let's stop for a minute here. The word Lord here is from the Hebrew word Yahweh, Yodevavhe. This name includes the verb Hava, which means to exist. And then you add the letter Yod as a prefix, and it means He. So it means He exists. That's what Yahweh means. But if it is a causative verb, then it would mean He causes to exist. So both of these are true. Yahweh exists. He's the self-existent one, and He causes to exist. All right. The text talks about the host, and he says, the host of heaven worship you. Only living creatures worship Yahweh. Clearly, the heavenly host here refers to created divine beings which reside in the heavens, and Psalm 97 tells us that Yahweh is exalted above all gods. Psalm 97, 9, for you, O Yahweh, are most high over the earth, you are exalted far above all gods. Now, think for a second. If there are no other gods, then what this is saying is, Yahweh, you're far above things that don't exist. That doesn't mean a lot, does it? So in the Hebrew Bible, we see a ruling body consisting of Yahweh as the supreme monarch and various supernatural attendants. 1 Kings 22, again, it says, the Micaiah said... Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on the throne. I was in the throne room. And all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right and on his left. And Yahweh said, Who will entice Ahab? That he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead. And one said one thing, and another said another. So he sees this host of heaven standing around the throne, and God asks him a question. He says, who's going to entice the game? He wants to kill Ahab, so he says, how should we do this? How should we do it? And then the, it goes on. It says, then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh, saying, I'll entice him. And the Lord, Yahweh said to him, by what means? And he said, I'll go out, and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And if you know the story, that's what happened. The prophets said, oh, go, go. God will give you the victory. Go get it. Go get him. And he died. <laughs> and he said, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. So this vision seen by Micaiah shows that Yahweh is in complete control of the events. He only approves the course of action that suits his purpose, which in this case was to bring about the death of King Ahab. Now Daniel also shows us Yahweh's sovereignty 
over the hosts of heaven, in Daniel 4.35, he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? So the hosts of heaven are divine beings. They're gods who Yahweh created and rules over. And notice that it says he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. See, the biblical authors believe that the heavens and the earth are parallel realities with man ruling on earth and the gods ruling in heaven. But these gods who rule in heaven also rule over men who are on the earth. Parallel realities. You got the gods, you got the humans. Now, when we compare these texts, all these texts about the divine council, these other gods, a clear picture emerges. God is consistently depicted on the throne, surrounded by his heavenly family who participate in discussions and carrying out his plans. The divine throne room is the place from which Yahweh governs the world with his heavenly council. We also see a council meeting in this text. You're probably really familiar with Isaiah 6, right? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh sitting on a throne. There he is. He's on his throne. He's high and he's lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. This is a category of divine being. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. Is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This is just a beautiful picture. I love it because of the historical context here. In the year King Uzziah died, Uzziah was an awesome military leader. He was the Trump of the day, if you will, okay? He had things under control. He was ruling. He was reigning. Everything was good. Tiglath-Pileser was on the horizon, the Assyrian king, but they didn't worry about him because they had Uzziah. Well, now Uzziah died, and what happens now? And he goes, well, God's still on the throne. It's okay if Uzziah's gone because God's still there, and he's ruling, and he's reigning. So this is a throne room scene. God and the angels, they're there, all right? Now, drop down to verse 8 and watch what he says. And I heard the voice of Yahweh saying, Who shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. So Yahweh speaks to represent both himself, Who shall I send and the divine council, who will go for us? In all these texts, we have a positive portrayal of the divine council functioning in their ideal role. But something happened. Because God accuses some of these gods of judging unjustly. In the next verse in Psalm 82. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? What happened? We got these gods and all of a sudden now these gods are doing things that aren't right. Okay? Let me give you my interpretation of this, okay? <laughs> you be a Berean. You figure this out. You study this out. I think the problem started when Yahweh created man 
and brought him into the divine council. You got this family, you got God, you have the gods, the angels, they're, they're in a family together. God brings man into it. And I think some of the gods said, hey, we don't, who is this puny human? We don't want him here. We don't want any part of this. They didn't like it. Okay? And they wanted him out. And in Genesis, we learn that the first man, Adam, was created, and he's brought into Eden. Eden is the cosmic mountain. It's the dwelling place of Yahweh. It's the place where Yahweh holds counsel. So Adam's brought into the garden, and he's brought into an intimate relationship with Yahweh in the divine council. He's walking there. He's living among the gods, okay? They walked in the garden. They dwelt in their presence. Well, you know what happens next, right? Man is tempted, and he sins. Now, what's encouraging to me, the book of Jubilees, Second Temple Literature, says that Adam was in the garden for seven years before he sinned. I like that. You read the biblical text, he just got in there, and boom, right away he sins. You know, I'm like, I like the idea that he held out a little bit, okay? That's a little more encouraging to me. So what caused man to sin? Well, the text said it was a serpent who tempted Eve, all right, in Genesis 3.1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? So we see here that it was the serpent who tempted them. Now, Revelation 12.9 tells us that the serpent was Satan. I believe the serpent was a divine being, one of the gods. It's not a member of the animal kingdom, but a member of the divine council. This watcher, this God, he chose to oppose Yahweh's plan for humanity by prompting humans to disobey Yahweh, because he knew if I can get you to disobey Yahweh, God's either going to kill you or remove you from Eden. You'll get kicked out, and I think... A lot of the Second Temple literature tells us that this happened because of jealousy. They're just jealous of man. So they want him out. So the plan works, right? Now, man sins. God kicks them out of the presence. They're out of the garden. They're away from the council. They're out on their own. Notice Yahweh's promise after the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. What do we call this text? What's this text known as? That's right, the Proto-Evangelum, and that means the first gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He's talking to, the, to Satan here. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the Bible's first prediction of a Savior. This is called the mother prophecy of all prophecies in the Bible, because the prophecy of Christ overcoming Satan. Eve's seed is a human being who will come and fix what Adam has done. So in other words, the deliverer will come. So it's my understanding that the gods understood this promise of a coming redeemer who would be human. So the gods' next strategic move, remember, they, want, they don't want man, they don't want this fixed. They don't want man back in God's presence. So their next move was to attempt to destroy the human race by genetically corrupting the human line so it would no longer be human. And we see this in Genesis 6. 
When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, Ben Elohim, all right, they saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So these sons of God are leaving heaven. They're coming down. They're taking human wives. Then Yahweh said, my spirit shall not always abide in man forever. He's flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men of old, who were of old, the men of renown. So the sons of God in verse 2 and 4 are rebellious divine beings from God's heavenly host, also called watchers. They've taken the form of human, masculine human creatures, and these gods have married women, and had offspring that are hybrid offspring. They're half human, half divine. And these hybrid offspring are called Nephilim. They're giants. That's, we see that throughout the Bible. And they're very destructive to mankind. So we have Satan corrupting man in the garden. Then we have the watchers, the sons of God, corrupting the gene pool with hybrid beings. So the Savior can't come through human line because it's corrupted. And we got the Nephilim corrupting this whole thing. Now, you know, we read this and we think, ah, it's not a big deal to us because most people in this text try to make the sons of God be humans. All right, these are just humans having, you know, relations with either the line of Seth or, you know, they try to make it out all a human thing. So to most people, this text is just a no big deal. They scratch their heads and say, it's kind of weird, but let's move on. But from the writings of the Second Temple period, we see that they believe that the reason the wickedness so permeates the earth was a result of three incidents. If we ask people today, you know, why are men so wicked? What's the problem with man? They give you one incident. What would it be? The fall of Adam and Eve, right? That's it. Well, Adam fell in the garden. That's why men's so wicked. But the Second Temple believers had three ideas, all right? It was the fall of Adam. The second thing they said was the sin of the watchers. Okay, that added to the corruption of mankind. That's why men are so evil. What was the third event? There's another event that happened. At this event, God said, that's it, I'm done. That's enough. I had enough. The Tower of Babel. Okay, Genesis 11. So because of Genesis 3, the fall, and Genesis 6, men are evil. They're disobedient to Yahweh. And in Genesis 11, it reaches the summit at the Tower of Babel. Now, in Genesis 10, we have what's called the Table of Nations. And in that, Yahweh divides Noah's descendants into 70 different nations Keep that in your mind. Seventy different nations. This is recorded in Genesis 10.32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies. In their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now, the three sons of Noah are listed in this chapter along with their many descendants who make up the 70 nations in this list. What's interesting is that each list ends with the phrase, each with their own languages. Verse 5, verse 20, verse 31, all end. Each with their own languages. You see any problem with that? 
Well, the problem is, it's not till Genesis 11 where they get scattered and given different languages, okay? <laughs> the story assumes that the nations are already divided up with their own languages. But again, that division doesn't happen till chapter 11. So I believe that Genesis 10 and 11, they're not arranged chronological. The biblical writers weren't that big. A, chronolo, chronology wasn't a big deal to them. The storyline is important. What's happening is important, not so much the chronology. All right? They more want you to see the thematic thing that's going on here. So let's go to Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language. See, we just saw that they had different languages. Now it said they had one because the division hadn't happened yet. All right? And, this, and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butamen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, there's a lot of different views on why this was happening. What were they actually trying to do? I think the ancient Israelites, they knew exactly what the, these temples, these ziggurats, these towers were all about. They're temples. They're symbolic buildings designed to be man-made cosmic mountains. Now, temples were the place where the divine and the human met. They overlap. All right, God's in the temple. Man comes to the temple to worship God. This is why they say, let its top be in the heavens. They want to reach God. And I think the story presents Babel as the human attempt to reverse humanity's exile from Eden. God kicked them out of Eden. I'm done with you. You're going to go outside my garden. You're not going to be in my presence. Babel is an anti-Eden where humans are trying to ascend back into the skies to get back into God's presence. We'll do this ourselves. Okay, we'll just we'll get back there. We'll build a tower. Let's reach heaven. We'll get back in with God and everything will be good. Well, what happens at Babel is man's disobedience causes Yahweh. That he just basically says, that's enough. We have 11 chapters. God says, I'm done with you. I'm sick of you people. I've given you everything. You want to worship these other gods. You don't want to listen to me. So I'm done with you. And so he says, here's what I'm going to do. Man just continued to reject him. So he gave him up. And what happens in Genesis 10 and 11 is explained in Deuteronomy 32, but God says, I'm, I'm done with you, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take these 70 nations from 10, and i got 70 gods, and I'm going to put these gods over these nations. They'll rule you. I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm done with you nations. Okay? You just you pushed me too far. We see this in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, what's that? That's Genesis chapter 10. We just looked at that. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. There's the Ben Elohim again, the sons of God. So he took these 70 gods and he put these 70 nations under these gods. But Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. So here we see that Yahweh's responsible for the creation of and the placement of the nations. In fact, variations of the same Hebrew word here, parad, divided, are used in both Genesis 10.32, 
and here in this text in Deuteronomy 32. He divided them up. Now, the idea of the separation of mankind into 70 nations at the Tower of Babel was by and for the sons of God. Now, this is supported in the ancient book of Jasser, which is mentioned in Joshua 10.13, which says, Is it not written in the book of Jasser? And 2 Samuel 1.18 says, It is written in the book of Jasser. Here's Jasser 9.31 says, And they built the tower and the city, and they did this thing daily until many days and years were elapsed. And God said to the 70 angels who stood foremost before him, to those who were near him, saying, Come, let us descend and confuse their tongues, that one shall not understand the language of his neighbor. And they did so unto them. Now, if in Deuteronomy 32, Moses was indeed referencing Yahweh's separation of the nations according to Noah's offspring, specifically the physical separation of the Tower of Babel, it's important to note that Israel is not listed in the index of the 70 nations in chapter 10 of Genesis. Why not? Why didn't he list Israel in those nations? <laughs> nation of Israel didn't exist yet. There's no nation of Israel. There's nations. God's dealing with all mankind. Now, the statement, God set the boundaries of the nations according to the number of the children of Israel. That's, what's, that's how some texts read in this Deuteronomy text. But it's really out of context here. They can't be according to the, you know, the children of Israel because they didn't exist. And better texts, there's a lot of textual evidence you know, for the rendering sons of God here. I don't have time to go into that, but again, that is on the website. Now, commenting on Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, John Walton writes this. He says, these verses are intended to contrast the fact that the Lord has set Israel apart unto himself from among the nations, and Israel is not numbered with them. They're not numbered with them. Because the nations have their own gods who are mortal, they do not have Yahweh who alone does not die and is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. So what happens at Babel is man's disobedient causes Yahweh to divide them up and give them over to these lesser gods. Let them rule you. You want to, you want to worship them, you go right ahead. They were to worship these lesser gods because Yahweh is finished. Man continued to reject him and serve other gods, so he gave him up. Then what happens? He's done. Genesis 11 ends. God divided up the nations. He's given them the lesser gods. So now what's he do? He starts a new nation with a new people. And in Genesis 12, he says, Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, many Bible commentators say Abram was a pagan moon worshiper because his father Terah was. That doesn't mean he was. Some of the Second Temple literature said that Abraham served God from the age of three on. These people understood and they knew Yahweh. All right, so Yahweh calls out Abraham. He says, look, Abraham, I'm going to start with you and I'm just going to start all over. And I'm going to make a new people. So he starts a new family. The other nations are all under these gods. And these gods really, in fact, work for him. But they're all under the control. And listen, God had planned before the separation 
that someday I'm going to bring these nations back. I put them under the gods, but I'm going to bring them back. Notice the very next verse in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Because through Abraham, the promise comes to all who believe. So Yahweh had rejected and scattered the nations. And now he says through Abraham, all the families will be blessed through you, Abraham. I'm choosing you, but I'm going to use you as a vehicle to bring all these families back. You and your seed, he says in Galatians, and the seed being Christ. Now, according to Psalm 82, all these disobedient gods were judged and defeated at the cross and the resurrection of Christ. We go to the last verse in Psalm 82. It says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nation. See, the nations are going to come back. He's going to inherit them. Who is the God here? Who is he talking about? Who is to judge the disobedient gods of the earth? Well, the Septuagint here uses the word arise, which is anatosis in the Greek. This is the term used in the New Testament every time for the resurrection. So, arise! This is a resurrected God. Judge the earth. He arises, He judges the earth. And then at Pentecost, Yahweh begins to reclaim these nations for Himself. These nations He had separate, I'm bringing them back. In other words, He had not forever abandoned the nations to the watchers. I'm going to call them back to Myself. And we see this in Luke 10, 1. He says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So he's sending out the 72. And you say, well, I thought it was 70. Well, it all depends on if you use the Septuagint or the Masoretic text. Okay, so here they're using the Septuagint and they say 72. It's easier just to stick with 70. Okay, either way, it's 72 in Genesis and then it's 72 in Luke or it's 70 either way. The signaling is what you want to get here, what he's trying to say. All right. Remember, the number of nations listed in the table of nations matches this, 70. He disinherited 70. Now, since Luke viewed the gospel as God's plan for reclaiming the nations that he disinherited at Babel before Israel even existed, the number of the disciples in Luke 10 was meant to match the number of nations to reinforce that symbolism. You've got 70 nations, 70 gods. Now you got the 70 disciples reclaiming the nations. Yeshua's inauguration of the kingdom meant that the 70 disinherited nations, they're being reclaimed. Sending out the 70 disciples expresses this, its theological messaging. Look at Luke 10, 17 and 19. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan. Fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So in conjunction with the successful mission of the 70, Yeshua declares the expulsion of Satan from God's presence. Satan is being defeated and the nations are being made part of the kingdom of God. Now I believe that since AD 70, with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, Satan, the watchers, the demons are all defeated foes. He defeated them in the resurrection. That was consummated in the return of Christ. 
Their purpose, the purpose of this demonic host, these fallen gods, was to stop the work of Christ in redeeming man. That was completed in AD 70. They've had no purpose anymore. They can't stop it. It's over. And so they're also over. Okay? The redemption is complete. Now, I also do believe that not all the gods fell. They're still good gods, and I think those good ones are still part of the divine council, which believers are part of the divine council now also. We are all part of the family of God. Now, so that's basically this whole concept of the gods and and what their purpose was and what they attempted and what they failed at. Oftentimes an argument is made against this position of divine plurality. Uh, They'll use verses such as Deuteronomy 32-39. See now that I, even I, am He. There is no God beside me. I kill... Oh, what? That's got to be a mistake. I made alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. So God's saying, hey, there's no one. There's no God besides me. We also see this in Isaiah 45.5. I am Yahweh. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Now, how do we work this out? What's he saying? I mean, we saw all these verses with other gods. Now he's saying there is no other God. When Yahweh says, I'm Yahweh and there's no other God besides me, this is an ancient biblical slogan of incomparability of sovereignty, not exclusivity of existence. It was a way of saying that a certain authority is the most powerful compared to all other authorities. In other words, compared to me, there's nobody who's an authority. I'm the only authority. It didn't mean there were no other authorities that existed. And I can prove this by looking at Isaiah 47, 8. He says, Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow and know the loss of children. Now here, the ruling power of Babylon is proudly claiming in her heart, I am and there's no one beside me. So the power of Babylon is not saying, there's no other powers, there's no other cities besides me. But she was saying that she is the ruling power. And Yahweh uses that phrase, I am Yahweh and there is no other. Not to deny the existence of other gods, but to express His absolute sovereignty over them. We saw over and over, these other gods worship Him. Yahweh is God of gods and Lord of lords. Deuteronomy 10.17 for Yahweh, your God, is God of gods. What's that? He's the, he's the head of them all. He created them. He rules them. He's Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Joshua 22 and Psalms, I believe it's Psalm 50, also say, The mighty one, God, Yahweh, the mighty one, God, Yahweh, He knows And let Israel know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against Yahweh, do not spare us today. Now, this phrase that he uses twice here, the mighty one, God, Yahweh, in the Hebrew is El Elohim Yahweh, and it means Yahweh is 
the greatest God. Amen? Amen. He's the greatest God. He created, He rules, He's over them, but He has a counsel. Let's pray. Father, thank You this morning for the opportunity again to look at this divine viewpoint. Father, I pray that You give each and every person here the spirit the heart of a Berean, Father, that they would search the Scriptures to see if this is so. Not to buy it, not to reject it, just search it out and see for themselves, is this truly what the Scriptures teach? Lord, I thank You for just continually opening up the Word of God to us, that we keep learning new things. It is so amazing to me that we can study our whole life and never know it all, just always be learning, always growing. Help us to just have a desire, Lord, to know more, of what your word teaches. Amen. All right. Comments? Questions? <laughs> Do we know the names of these divine council? The gods? Was uh, Baal and Oh yeah, we know a lot of different names. I mean, there's. This is the thing. You don't recognize it, but throughout Scripture, all diff- you see all these different gods named in a lot of different places. Just read over it because you don't know, you know, what's going on. Um, it's in Proverbs. It says the horse leech has two daughters saying, "Give, give." Those are demons that it's talking about. Okay. Now again, you. If you, want to, if you want to get a good reference book, all right, the Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible. It's, a, it's not a light reading book, but it lists all the deities, all the demons throughout Scripture. Okay, It's a comprehensive work, the Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible. You'd be amazed at how many times you, know, you read something and you're like, I don't know what that is. You know, uh, It talks about... Scripture talks about arrows being flung. Well, this is a certain demon, and yeah, there's there's a lot there behind the scenes that we miss through our English translations. Um, Michael and Gabriel, angels, just angels. They were not part of the divine council. You know, I think they probably were. Angels are a lower level servant type uh, divine being. Where the gods are above them, you've got different ranks of angels. Uh, these are warriors and, and messenger angels. So, yeah, I think they have a pretty, a pretty high place. <laughs> oh, good question. Uh, question is, why the demonic cabal in D.C. keeps ruling? <laughs> and and we talked about this last week and I said, you know, if you base your life on empiricism you look at the world, you say, man demons gotta be out there I mean, look how sick this is look how sick, this, but let me tell you this God said man, the intention of his heart are evil continually James says we're drawn away not of the devil, of our own lust. Mm-hmm. 